The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome. It's wonderful to be on the, uh, with you again today. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. Uh, this is a great show. I've really been looking forward to this. As uh, many listeners know, I've really been uh, uh, focused in the last couple of weeks about issues of social justice and uh, the place and the role that museums can play in uh, making positive change in their communities and our world. And I've also, at the same time, been very interested in how museum studies programs and uh, different ways that we can begin to teach uh, and explore ways of uh, getting the next generation involved in museums. And so my my program today is called Radical Museum Studies. And I think uh, when you hear my guest and some of her wonderful and uh, exciting views, you will agree with me that radical in uh, the definition of root change is uh, the very appropriate word for that. Uh, as I said, I've been really interested in how museums can learn from social mu- movements. You know, we always talk about uh, what museums can teach other organizations, but we very seldom think about what we can learn from others. We tend to be a little insular. So I was thrilled to make the acquaintance of uh, Therese Quinn, who is the Director of Museum and Exhibition Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And she is going to share her perspective on some of the questions that I've been grappling with over the last uh, couple of weeks. So, Therese, welcome to the show today. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, and thank you for your work in this area. The shows that you've been doing recently have just been super fascinating to me, and I I really think necessary for sparking these conversations about how we can change our cultural institutions, museums, galleries, and all the other kinds of institutions that are so important to our society, and to make them more vital and important to people. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, Therese, would you just, uh, let's start by having you share just a little bit about your career trajectory. I, you know, There's so much more from your career path that I think uh, sort of feed in and, and have, uh, have uh, colored the way you, you look at, at um, 
at your field. And then, you know, what sort of drew you to museum studies? Sure. Well, you know, um, I'm a person who um, maybe like other people in museums, I'd, I'd like to actually hear your own path after we talk about my pathway. Um, but I'm a person who didn't really consider working in museums as I was uh, going to school and, and getting my uh, undergraduate degree. In fact, I didn't know anything about employment in museums until my actually really the end of my undergrad, finishing my degree. And I overheard someone talking about an internship that she was doing in a museum. It was here in Chicago. It was Field Museum of Natural History. And her internship sounded really fascinating. And it was timely that I overheard her talking about it because she was just getting ready to graduate. And so her position was going to be open. So I asked her about that and how she had gotten that position. And she told me who to talk to. And I applied for the internship and I got it, which was really exciting. And it was really the first time that I'd actually been behind the scenes in any kind of museum. And at the time I was studying art. So my undergrad degree is a BFA in in visual art, and I was doing uh, an internship in uh, like photography and media-related work, and I loved it, but it was just a part-time internship, and then by the time I finished up my degree and graduated, a part-time position in that same area opened up, and so I also applied for that position because I really didn't know what else I was going to do after I graduated, and I got that position. And again, it was just kind of a, you know, it was a part-time thing, but it was very exciting work, and I was able to work on media related to exhibits that were being planned, and I loved doing that. And when a full-time job opened, I also applied for that and eventually got that. So my museum career started at Field Museum of Natural History. And even though my undergrad degree was in visual arts, I ended up doing exhibit development based on um, science areas of an exhibit that was being worked on at the time. Um, It was an exhibit about Africa. So the sections that I ended up developing were about the environments of Africa, the ecosystems, the mega herbivores, and things like that. I think that's very interesting, and it's a very similar uh, career trajectory for many of us uh, that had degrees and then found museums in one way or the other and then really learned on the job, uh, as you did. My my, uh, trajectory is very similar, but uh, as you and I know, that is really changing. Uh, The generation who's coming up now, uh, there are, I think, fewer opportunities for people to just walk into jobs uh, without having that... uh, uh, specific degree in museum studies and I and I hope that we can we'll circle back to that uh, and whether that's a, a good traject you know a, a good trend or a, a one that maybe we should uh, think about a little bit more but uh, so then what drew you to so you were at the field museum and you mm. were doing fabulous fabulous work and then so how did you get from there to the university as a, uh, a director of a museum studies program? Sure. Well, I, I worked at Field Museum for about five years on this exhibit that I mentioned. And while I was there, uh, it was the time that Mike Spock, the son of Dr. Spock, mm-hmm. <laughs> was also there. And he was doing very exhibit, uh, very interesting exhibit work and pro- public programming work. And the team of exhibit people that I worked with um, was the first multiracial team in the museum, and it was the only team and the first team ever in field museum history to be headed up by an African-American. 
American person. And so there was a lot of discussion about that at the time and what the Africa exhibit would mean both to the African-American community in Chicago, what it meant to the museum, who we needed to talk to about developing that exhibit. And there were a lot of discussions going on about equity in museums and museum hiring. And so it was, a, it was an intellectually exciting time to be there. And it was also... Um, um, you know, kind of a challenging time for me, and challenging in all the best senses of the word, well, most of the best senses of the word, because I really grew um, in the way that I was thinking about what the potential of museums is in society. And I also started to ask questions about why I'd never heard about museum jobs. Now, I grew up in kind of a working class community out in California, and when we went on field trips, we didn't go to museums. We, they actually took us on field trips every single year to another kind of factory. So when I reflected back on that later, I thought, well, I guess they were preparing me for employment in the kind of positions they thought people in our community were going to get. We were going to be factory workers. And I knew that my own children and children that I was aware of in Chicago often went to museums for field trips. So I thought, well, that's a different kind of pathway. So what could we do to introduce children to museums earlier? And one of the really most exciting projects I worked on at Field Museum was a project with uh, children from all over the Chicago, greater Chicagoland area. And it was a five-year-long project. We worked with the same group of 30 children for a complete five years so that they actually grew up with our exhibits. And the idea was that we would bring them in at the beginning of the exhibit development, and they would learn about Africa, they would learn about museums, they would learn about developing exhibits. And by the time the exhibit was built, they would be able to serve as the docents for the exhibit. And that's exactly what happened. So that was a really um, eye-opening kind of experience for me. And it started me on a pathway of thinking about how museums are places of education and that they could be much more open in the way that they educate people and more open to different kinds of kids, that more city kids could actually come in and learn how to do things like develop exhibits, that those don't have to be special jobs only for special people who have you know, special degrees, but that the exhibit development is a skill that could really be um, transmitted in school. So after that project was over, over the five years, my position at Field Museum ended, and I went on to get another job at another museum in Chicago, which I didn't like as, as much, but it was actually kind of a bad employment situation, and it started me also asking questions about labor law and why it was that museums could also be such terrible places to work and why they paid so poorly and other kinds of questions. And after I was there for a couple of years, I decided that I would work independently. So I, I went to work for an independent person in the city of Chicago, and I started to go back to graduate school. And all those questions were in my head, you know, about how museums could be more open, how they could educate more broadly, and how they could be better places to work. And when I went back to graduate school, I ultimately decided to do doctoral research on a combination of those questions. So I, I developed projects that were based, um, that allowed me to research how Chicago public school, high school students use museums and think about museums and how they can learn the skills to develop exhibits um, and, and how that process is educational for them. That's, so, that's, that's very interesting. Well, that's, no, it's, it's, uh, it's fabulous. I think you are absolutely right. You were you were at the field at a unique p 
period of time, there there was a there was an opportunity to be thinking about some things uh, in very unique ways, and a, a group of people were were really uh, thinking about them in some very different ways. Uh, you know, Mike Spock, um, uh, Janet Kamian, uh, Judy Rand, uh, and yourself, uh, and several others. And I find it interesting as well, and I'm I'm sure this isn't lost on you that uh, you were doing an Africa exhibit in the the Natural History Museum, oh, and you know, for sure. <laughs> and yeah. and we've had uh, you know several guests over the last couple of weeks have have uh, pointed out that to audiences who are have been considered minority audiences or f- quote foreign audiences to find their history or their culture presented as natural history where Western European history is always presented in history museums really does underscore a, uh, a set of assumptions that we have yet to really address in this country. Yeah, and that's why it was critical that that we spent a year of planning, um, and it, that planning process, uh, which really did go on for an entire year. And actually, Mike Spock was brilliant. At, and he hired a community organizer to head the exhibit development team. So that person spent an entire year organizing communities in Chicago around the idea of an Africa exhibit at Field Museum. So there were many, many discussions held all across the city about what that exhibit could be or should be and who it was for. And not surprisingly, the exhibit opened to um, really a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it opened well. People liked the exhibit. People, uh, I think, in the city of Chicago felt connected to the exhibit. I mean, despite critiques, you know, no, no exhibit's perfect. But there was no big um, protest of that exhibit. And I think it was because of that year of planning and, and work with this community organizer. I think I I uh, I think you're right. So what led you? So you did your doctorate doctorate work. You got to the university uh, uh, atmosphere. Then what led you to decide that uh, there needed to be a museum studies program? What did you hope well, to accomplish? Okay. I'll, I'll just back up a little okay. bit too. One thing that I didn't say is that that you know probably maybe because of where I grew up and the time I grew up in. I, I'm, I have also been an activist for my, my whole life, I'd say. And so even while I was doing the work at these museums, I, I was involved in various other kinds of social justice-related work. So, for example, when I was at Field Museum, I helped to start the first gay and lesbian employees group there. And we, we sought benefits for the partners of gay and lesbian employees. So that's just one example of the kind of way that I brought my activist interests into the work that I did. Um, I was also the first female co-chair of the American, uh, then American Association of Museums um, Lesbian and Gay Issues Caucus. So I've, I've been involved in that kind of work, um, you know, in gay and lesbian related issues, but also labor issues and, and just uh, kind of related things. So when I went back to graduate school, I brought that kind of passion for justice work with me. And I, I sought out a mentor at UIC, which is where I did my doctoral work, who was also supportive of those kinds of interests. And that shaped what I, you know, it shaped my perspectives and it shaped the kind of work that I did. And then ultimately, it shaped how I thought about uh, the kind of work that I could do after I 
um, graduated with my doctoral degree. I didn't come right into museum studies, so I worked in art education for a little more than a decade here in Chicago. And that was excellent because I was able to work in schools and bring my background in art, but also my other ideas that were connected to exhibits and displays and, and you know, those kinds of interests into that work. And I learned a lot about schools and kids in the schools and what teachers need. And that really related to those other museum interests as well. So when the opportunity opened up to apply for this position as the director of a brand new museum studies program, at UIC. I was very excited about it. I loved the work I was doing already, so that's a great position to be in when you're applying for a job because I didn't feel like I desperately needed a job. I enjoyed the job I had, but it seemed like such a good opportunity. And in particular, it was a good opportunity because one of the people who helped to found the program here at UIC is Lisa Lee, who had previously done some amazing work with public engagement. Uh, she founded an organization in Chicago called the Public, public School Square that um, was like a, a, a place where people could come and have dialogues together about critical issues of the moment. And then she came on uh, to become the director of the Jane Addams Whole House Museum, and she did you know amazing work at that place as well. So she was one of the co-founders of this program, and she herself was interested in bringing in someone as a director of the program who, who had an interest in, in justice work and could see how that was connected to museums and exhibits. And so I think that that's probably a part of the reason I got the job. It, you know, it, it matched the kind of work I had done in other areas of my life. So I was excited about that potential and also the potential of working in a public university because UIC is an urban land-grant university and it, it has as a mission to educate the public of Chicago specifically and to be an open university for people in the city, you know, open and accessible. And so that meant that more people could come into this program and think differently about what museums could be and experiment and explore and and take up all those ideas under the mantle of um, doing justice work in a university that supports that kind of work. So that was very exciting. That is. And, and just to be clear, this is a relatively new program then. I mean, how long has it been in existence? We're just going into our sixth year. Yes. And I'm just in my fifth year at the university, so it is pretty new. It, this is a very, again, it sounds as if you are at the right place at the right time with the right fertile ground, so to speak, uh, with, your, with uh, your colleagues and collaborators. This is really very exciting, and, and uh, certainly, I think, uh, in looking at the landscape of museum studies program, a very unique approach. Uh, to museum studies. But before yeah. we go any further, I am going to go ahead. We're going to take our first of uh, two breaks. And when we come back, uh, Teresa and I are going to talk more about her specific program that she has, has developed. And I so be sure to stay tuned. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Many, many of you have, and I enjoy hearing from each and every one of you just about the show in general. And I always love it when you give me uh, suggestions for new guests, as uh, Therese was a uh, uh, result of a wonderful suggestion from a, a, a 
uh, former guest. So please uh, continue to uh, let's keep the dialogue going even off the air. Uh, we will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you ready for an Anything Goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show. The Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life and the. Uh, Topic of today's program is Radical Museum Studies, and I am here with a director of the Museum Studies program at the University of Illinois Chicago, Therese Quinn. And right before the break, uh, Therese had uh, shared with us a fab her fabulous career narrative, uh, starting out as many of us have as a uh, uh, serendipitous uh, uh, entree into museums, uh, having a, a unique and wonderful opportunity at the Field Museum of Natural History, but weaving her strong beliefs and experience in social justice with museum education, and uh, then ending up as director of this museum studies program that is aimed with a focus on uh, social justice and change. Um, 
But, Therese, uh, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, the organizers of the Museum Workers Speak group, uh, a, a relatively new group of uh, museum professionals uh, talking about issues of uh, uh, justice in museums, and as as you have uh, uh, alluded to as well, uh, pay issues, equity issues, uh, uh, racial uh, issues, and one of the points uh, also that they are very concerned about is the proliferation of museum studies programs and the fact that many graduates uh, across the country who have spent a great deal of money in uh, getting their master's in museum studies are having a difficult, if not impossible, time of getting, you know, finding a job in a museum. It's almost, they. Uh, many of them have expressed to me the feeling of you know, those of us who have been in the profession uh, for a while keep raising the ante, you know, raising the bar. Uh, so I guess my, my very blunt question to you is, why do we need another museum studies program within, uh, you know, within the context of, of these uh, concerns? Well, I think that's a fair question, and I, I, I think that I, there's not just one answer to it. I think partly we have to look at the context. I mean, we're still in a bad employment context nationally, and that cuts across all fields and sectors. And we also know that institutions are demanding more and more, you know, higher and higher education levels for their uh, people as just a, at an entry level, and that, of course, makes a very difficult situation for students. Um, it, it, we know that education is I extremely costly and getting more costly. Student debt is, you know, increasing. It's over a trillion dollars right now, and that's, you know, a, a, really a national crisis at the moment. So though I think those are real concerns that students have as they feel themselves asked to take on, you know, to get more degrees and uh, take on higher levels of debt, and then to not find the employment that they think sh they should be able to get. So uh, anyway, it's a national problem. I don't think it's just a cruise to museum and exhibition studies. And so we have to think broadly about that. But at the same time, then there's the specific question. Uh, if, if we go to the Smithsonian Directory of Museum Studies programs, we can see that every state, almost every state, has a few of these programs. And so I think then we want to look at what those programs are about and think about what this program offers that is something different. And I, I think... What I um, actually, I just ran across someone's dissertation recently. It was really interesting research. It was an analysis of museum studies programs nationally, and he looked at what the curriculum content of those programs are. He really looked at all the syllabi and what the course descriptions were, and then he surveyed museum leaders and looked at what museums say they are seeking in people and what the skills are that the museums, uh, museum studies programs are transmitting. So museums say that they want people who can write grants. They can do financial planning, they can do, you know, all these very kind of concrete kinds of practical sorts of things. And museum studies programs tend to want to uh, teach people to think more broadly about the world, to be, you know, critical citizens and participants. So there's this kind of a glitch between those things. What our program's doing is asking people to think broadly about the world, but we're also asking people to, to think about how to change the world, to, to think about how to change institutions. So uh, another way of saying that is that museums don't need more professionals who can fit into a profession. They need people that can change what museums are about. 
So I really love the work of Stefano Harney and Fred Moten. They wrote a book in 2013 called The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study. And they said that museums need workers. Well, I'm saying museums need workers. What they said is workers who exceed the profession and by exceeding it, escape, escape it. And if, if you're seeking to only be a professional, then you're, you're seeking to reproduce a profession. And whatever the museum is already doing that's not working, and we know it's not working because museum audiences are on the decline, then you know, reproducing those systems is not going to help museums be the kinds of places that we want to visit or that we need in our society. So... I think instead we need a kind of a flip side of museum amateurs. And there I really like to think about what Edward Said used to talk about with, um, or has spoken about with, uh, in his book, Representations of the Intellectual. So we don't need professionals or experts. We need amateurs. Or Mike Spock used to say we need informed generalists. I mean, all those things work for me better than the idea of needing professionals or needing experts. Those roles are really confining, and they keep the museum in a static model, which is part of the problem, I think. I uh, thank you for sharing sharing that. I I find that a, a refreshing uh, perspective. And frankly, and uh, you and I were actually uh, talking a little bit about that at, at the break, since I have had, have had the advantage of of reading some of of your uh, writings, and 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 how you have expressed that so eloquently. And I guess that is why I. You have articulated one of the concerns I have had when I think about museum studies programs. Now, I, I must admit, I have never participated in such a program, so I, I try to be very uh, sensitive and circumspect about any criticism that I may have. But uh, in talking with colleagues who are uh, f teaching uh, museum studies or, or even museum leadership programs, I sometimes become concerned because I don't hear uh, this the kind of sentiments that, that you are bringing up of this idea of of how where we need to provide skills and increase capacity for people to make change as appropriate as opposed to teaching people to have the capacity to just do what everybody else has been doing. Right. Well, it's funny you mentioned leadership because often, uh, I, I guess there are, you know, some, there are many buzz phrases in, in the museum world, like in many other worlds. But one of the buzz phrases for museums is, um, in education as well, best practices. What are the best practices? And also talking about leadership, uh, you know, what are the best practices for leaders? And I particularly love, this is something I took from social movements, the, the words of Ella Baker, who was just a great civil rights activist, who said, strong people people don't need strong leaders. So I would like to think that we are a program here at UIC that is interested in developing strong people, people who can think independently, people who can think as public intellectuals and who see themselves that way and take themselves seriously in that way, but who don't set themselves aside from all the rest of the work and all the, you know, all the rest of the social concerns that we have. Um, so for example, before we were talking this morning, I, I was keeping up with some of the news, and I saw some articles about the protests that are going on right now at, at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and the contrast, the, the protests, they're, they're facing um, cuts there, financial cuts, 
And in particular, they want the people who work there who make an average salary in New York City of $49,000 a year. That's the average salary, which means that a lot of the full-time workers at MoMA make quite a lot less. They want them to pay more for their health care, substantially more. At the same time, we know that the chief executive of MoMA, Glenn Lowry, is on the list of 10 insanely overpaid nonprofit executives. He makes over $1.2 million, and they also give him $950,000 a year in salary and bonuses, and they also put him up rent-free in a $6 million apartment. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, those kinds of disparities, and that, that's one example, that's MoMA, but we know that there are these internal disparities in many museums. The people at the top are making lots of money. The people who are expected to do the work in the museums and actually keep those places running often make very little money, and increasingly museums are relying on unpaid labor, which we know is a problem, and we recommend here in our program that students not take those unpaid internships, but, but that they ask for, at a minimum, a stipend and better, a salary, because it's, it's just ridiculous that we would expect students to subsidize institutions where people at the top are making just those really obscene salaries. Well, and you know what I find interesting. I I uh, I have not been following the uh, uh, the MoMA um, news, and so I'm glad that you brought it up. And uh, again, just to sort of normalize things, uh, you know, certainly museums are not the only industry where there is a a significant salary disparity. Uh, but there have been several instances uh, recently in uh, uh, the Financial Times and also uh, the Economist where. Usually, smaller corporations are uh, the uh, top leadership is re, uh, they are uh, reducing their salaries uh, so that they can increase the salary of their workers, uh, with the belief that uh, higher-paid workers will then not be having to worry so much about their next paycheck and their economic future, and can focus uh, more on the company and increase company loyalty. So, I think. Uh, that is a very interesting trend, and perhaps museums can learn from that trend as well. I think so. I, I, I think you're right to point in. I, I think it, it totally is a direction that's happening nationally and a dialogue that's happening nationally. And I would like to add to that that I think we're having that dialogue and that more um, leaders of institutions are taking those kinds of pay cuts. Not very many of them, but a few are doing that in direct response to the demands of social movements, starting with, um, well, maybe not starting with, but starting, I'll just point to the Occupy movement, who really brought forward the kind of wealth disparities we have in our nation, and continuing to the present with the Fight for 15 campaign, which has increasingly called for institutions, starting with fast food institutions, but, but you know, more, much more broadly, to pay at least a salary, a bottom line salary of $15 an hour, which is very minimal. And we still haven't gotten there as a, you know, that as an entry point minimum wage. Um, I, one other thing I wanted to say, I think, it, that is important for museums and, and really for all of us is to not focus in on uh, so much the, you know, this maybe gets back to the best practices, the kind of nuts and bolts perspective, which I think many of us can get lost in sort of the, the minutiae. There's another writer who I really like, the Italian writer Natalia Ginsburg, who wrote a wonderful book called The Little Virtues. And in that book, she points to 
um, she says that really instead of focusing on the little virtues, we should think of the, the great virtues. We should think of the bigger picture. So what she makes as a distinction. So as a little virtue, she points to caution. And instead, she thinks, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on caution, but rather we should be talking about courage. We should not focus on shrewdness, but we should focus on a love of truth. We should not um, focus on a desire for success, and this is directly applicable, I think, to museums, but rather on a desire to be and to know. So she really makes a contrast between those, those sort of small, kind of almost petty concerns, like, are, you know, are we, are we playing it safe? Are we, are we going to be successful if we do this exhibit? And instead, asks us to ask the big questions, will this exhibit, help people to be seen, help them to be heard, help them to understand their role in society, help them to take action, help them to be more courageous. I think as long as museums focus on this kind of, you know, petty, trivial sorts of things that so many of them do, or, uh, you know, trendy kinds of concerns, you know, what's the latest television show kids like? I mean, I worked at a children's museum for a while, and, you know, they're focused on stuff that just seems so often meaningless, not always, but, you know, sometimes very kind of trivial. It's just a missed opportunity to educate and to add meaning to people's lives. And that's why I think really in large part museums are seen as not indispensable institutions, but rather kinds of, you know, peripheral institutions that we might go to when we're on vacation, but maybe not. I would like to see them considered as vital and important as, um, you know, the public schools in our communities or other kinds of places that we just could not imagine a community without. And that said, they should also then, I think, be located in every part of the city. Chicago has had many recent battles and sort of long, long back battles of, of, um, discussions about where our museums should be located. And museums have fought tooth and nail to not be located in diverse or largely minority communities. They have insisted on remaining by the lakefront and in all white communities. And that's a travesty. You know, museums have to own up to their own flaws and their own bad judgment when they make those kinds of decisions and instead think about their role more broadly in in the city and in their own communities, I think. I uh, who who uh, who was the uh, uh, the author that you were quoting before the oh, uh, that little was Natalia virtues? Ginsburg. I uh, I'm I did do not know of her work, and I, I am going to look that up. Uh, that's what I love about the show. I learn as much as as uh, as everybody else. Uh, it sounded to me as you were uh, were quoting her, she was really talking about mission. It is. I think that's exactly right. That's the, the way to put it for museums, is thinking about the mission in terms of these big ideas, these big goals, these big contributions to society. And, and just to be clear, I don't think uh, you or I are saying that museums should uh, dispense with being uh, financially um, uh, uh, responsible, uh, being able to document uh, decisions that are being made, uh, or or forgetting to uh, uh, care about their collections or document their collections or make them accessible by putting them online. I mean, there are clearly skills that need to be uh, maintained within museums. Uh, again, perhaps that kind of best practices, uh, but it's best practices with uh, a in service to a greater good, perhaps, might be a way of saying it. 
Sure. And, and when I, I think of best practices, I think uh, I've often heard it um, used as a way of saying that there's, there's one right way to do things. And maybe in some areas, I mean, adding up the numbers, maybe there's one right way to do it. <laughs> but, but beyond that, there are only specific situations, specific contexts that need to be attended to. And so, for example, when you talk about fiscal responsibility, it seems to me an argument could be made um, in, in Chicago, but also nationally, where we know that only 20% of all museum visitors are members of minority groups, racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, in, in, that's a similar kind of statistic in the city of Chicago, but we are a city of um, people of color in Chicago. So that's a missed opportunity for museums in the city of Chicago. If they are only serving uh, a minority ethnic population of 20%, they are losing out on serving a, a much broader group of people that they could be serving. That would be fiscally responsible for them to take that uh, seriously as a goal. And you know, I don't hear museums making that argument very often, that that's why they need to make that decision. But beyond that, it's a moral goal. And so I think that that's where we get into the, the difference between the little virtue and the big virtue. It's not only fiscally advantageous to serve all the people, but it's morally right, and museums should make that decision because of, of that rightness. Particularly public museums, they have that responsibility, and many of them are not living up to it. Thank you. I, I couldn't have said it better. I think that's, uh, that's very well put. Uh, with that, we are going to take our second break. And when we come back, uh, Therese is going to share with us some of the examples of programs that have been done and are ongoing at the University of Illinois Chicago Museum Studies Program. So stay tuned. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and we have been talking about a radical museum studies program. And uh, remember, I was trained as a scientist, uh, and to me, the word radical is always defined as a root at our base, uh, root change. And uh, we are talking with someone who is eloquent in this regard, Teresa Qu- uh, Therese Quinn, who is director of the Museum Studies Program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. We've been talking a lot about h- how museums can learn from the social justice movement uh, historically and currently. And uh, now, Therese, I think is a, would be a wonderful opportunity to share with our listeners some of the examples of the projects and initiatives uh, your program and your students have been involved with that really Ill- put into practice some of the, the theories that we've been talking about. Thanks, Carol. I, I would love to talk about that. The students are doing fantastic work, as they do all over the place. Students are doing great work. So I'll tell you about a, a couple, maybe three examples of exhibit projects or uh, public programming projects that the students have worked on. Um, but The first one is something that a group of students did really in the first year I was working with the program, so it was already about three, four years ago, that was called Meme in America that used and analyzed social media to make visible how political ideas travel over online networks during our recent, at that time, recent presidential campaigns. And they organized a forum for that. They had a, a young graduate student researcher come who talked about the use of memes and social media, and they invited people to email in their favorite political memes that they posted on a Tumblr site. And so this was a a really successful project all the way through because it included visuals. There was actually a small display in the forum location of these memes. The Tumblr site received thousands of views, so that was great as an example of how you can reach people more broadly when you're using new technologies. And they had great dialogue about politics and social media, bringing those ideas together. The next project that they worked on in this site, um, and I should mention that this site was made available to us through UIC's Social Justice Initiative, which was able to gain access to two empty storefronts on Halstead Street in the old Maxwell Street area. And they made these available to us just to use as um, pop-up galleries or sites of experimentation for our students, and that was really wonderful working with that group. So the second exhibit, we looked back in time at the work of a wonderful politician from Chicago whose name was Cardis Collins. And she really took on the topic of cultural diversity in museums, both in terms of hiring and in terms of programming. So we looked at her work and we actually um, read congressional testimony that she had. She held hearings all across the nation, actually, Washington, D.C., Chicago, somewhere out on the West Coast, about the lack of, di- of diversity in employees and also the cultural relevance of programs. And then the students decided to select some of the, uh, some of the quotes from these congressional hearings, and in particular the statistics about hiring practices who worked in the museums. 
And they made a display of those things that was installed in this storefront. But they also decided to bring it up to the present by contacting all the museum leaders, the same museums in Chicago that Curtis Collins had contacted. They contacted those exact same people or the people serving in those positions and asked how it was going now. And they reminded them of the congressional testimony that had been given over 20 years ago uh, in the 1990s and asked them to bring it up to the present. So, for example, if they're hiring if they only had, um, you know, 2% people of color working in their museum in the 1990s, how did it look today? And they sent letters to all these leaders, and they really only received one written response, one verbal response, and all the other museums just avoided the question. <laughs> so wow. they posted those responses up in the windows, too, but also used that as a, a way to have dialogue, continuing dialogue about um, how these are challenges that museums are still facing and that we can, you know, we still need to make those kinds of most basic changes. So those were projects that happened a couple of years back. A really recent one that I'm super excited about is one that students did in a class I was teaching this semester called Public Engagement in Museums. And this class focuses on how do we identify publics and then how do we serve those publics or engage them with the ideas that we're interested in bringing forward. So for this project, I gave them a topic and the topic was campus organizing. And I chose that topic because at the time, the UIC faculty union, which is a new union, had just received its very first contract. And that took a lot of organizing on campus. <laughs> so I gave them the topic. And they said that they would come up with a project, which they did, which ended up being a walking tour of UIC's organizing history. So they did a lot of archival research, a lot of photo documentation, a lot of interviews with people. And then they made a map that w allowed people to take a, a self-guided tour. And then they also actually created a, a walking tour, which they led. And they announced the dates for those tours, and then they led the tours. And so that was very exciting. And they also put up a wonderful, um, well, actually, a lot of social media. They ended up having an Instagram, a Tumblr, a Twitter account. They had Facebook presence. And the walking tour map is available online as a PDF so that it will live on and people can just download it if they would like to find out more about those histories. And they're, they're kind of fascinating histories, some of which are still present on the landscape in the forms of the cultural centers that we have on campus, such as the African American Cultural Center and the Latino Cultural Center, both of which came about as a, a result of a lot of campus organizing and student protest, and even the daycare center that we have on campus, which came about as the result of a baby in that was held by parents on campus many decades back. So we can see the results, but sometimes we forget the histories of you know the long-term work that it took to get those wonderful places that we live with today. So that's why the students decided to focus it on, you know, make it visible, make those histories visible in these ways. Well, it seems to me that this, uh, your students are learning by doing. So they could have sat in a class, classroom, and uh, learned about the importance of archiving and or read a book about uh, the importance of archiving and uh, perhaps done a paper on uh, how one archives. Instead, they took a project that sounds as if there was a great deal of passion involved with and actually learned uh, and practiced archiving skills while they did a real project. It sounds as if the, uh, the, the museum studies program at the University of Illinois Chicago really is a very practical uh, and applicable uh, program. 
Well, I would say we're, we're a blend. I mean, I, I think you're right. We actually have two classes that we've designated as project-based classes. The other one is an exhibition planning class so that students do an exhibit in that class. But um, other, other of our classes are, are not practical in the sense that their uh, students are doing a project. They also do write papers. <laughs> And they do research, and, but you're right. I mean, we, we try to have a balance between those things. And one of the things that I, I realized just from my own life is that, that many of us are not taught very much about social movement history. We're not often um, taught very much about the kinds of theories that might help us understand the society that we live in. Uh, you know, just on the most basic level, it wasn't until I was already in my 30s and working in a museum, actually, that was a bad uh, employment situation, as I mentioned earlier. It wasn't until I was in that situation that I learned the term at-will employee. And it was because I was an at-will employee that I needed to learn that term on the job, and then I learned what it meant, which was not good. <laughs> it meant I could be fired at any time without any notice for almost any reason. And once I learned that, I thought, why didn't anybody teach me that in school? So those are the kinds of skills and frameworks in addition to, you know, high theory, let's say, or, um, you know, reading Edward Said, we also try to learn about practical things like some basic labor law, which might help us to make our workplaces fairer for, for us and, you know, better um, work environments. I, uh, I, okay, uh, so... I don't want to start a rumor. If you do decide to go to the Museum Studies program at the University of Illinois in Chicago, you will still have to read some books and sit in some classes and, yes, write a few term papers. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that's uh, – but I, I wanted to come back to something as well that just intrigued me with the uh, student project that, that you uh, described about uh, labor practices in at uh, on campus is that we also still get mired down in believing that history happened – hundreds of years ago to people who are long dead and irrelevant. And here, this was a history project that was relatively recent and still had significant relevance uh, to the, uh, the people of the campus. And it's that kind of history program that allows us to, I, I think, embrace uh, new and different ideas instead of always thinking that we have to rehash the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I think that's what students told me at the end of the project. That they loved bringing, uh, making the links between the past and the present. And when they wrote the, the walking tour, they included movements that were really contemporary, including the Graduate Employees Organization. We are, our uh, graduate students who work on campus are also unionized, and they were in the middle of their own campaign for a contract at that moment. So they wrote them right into the tour and brought it right up to the present. And some other kinds of social movements fight for 15 was another one that they wrote into the tour. That's a really relevant topic for many students on campus who are working in those kinds of employment situations like fast food and, you know, related work, um, retail, where they're not even making $15 an hour. So they, they wrote both those things in, and students who came on the tour loved to have that connection made between the past and the present. I think it was very valuable. Uh, well, I, I think uh, from that this is a wonderful program, and you certainly are are uh, equipping uh, students to not only take jobs in the museum profession, uh, and I hope they do, uh, because I think that this this kind of broad uh, new mindedness and uh, courage uh, as a 
uh, primary virtue and motivator will only uh, tend to strengthen our profession and, and move us in new and exciting directions uh, that will allow us to fulfill our, our missions in uh, much better ways. Uh, this has been just very, very exciting. I also, it seems to me that, that uh, the students who go through this program will also be equipped in uh, broad liberal arts thinking, which will help them uh, get uh, jobs in a variety of areas, not just museums. I think that's true, and, and we try to let students um, understand that as well, that there are many different kinds of uh, locations where they can bring these ideas, and, and many places that are maybe not traditional museums, but which also do exhibitions and do public programming, and all those kinds of um, skills that they learn here, they can take to those places as well. That's great. Well, Therese, I've had a wonderful hour. It's gone by so quickly. Thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Carol. It was so much fun. Great. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Until then, uh, remember, shoot me an email. Let me know what you're thinking about. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>